you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2. I am very excited for lots of reasons, primarily because I'm preaching a Christmas sermon, right? Christmas time. This is my first Christmas sermon. I am so excited. So, December 9th, 16 days. You ready? Is the tree up? All right. Presents, kind of. Maybe a few more shopping trips to do. Food planned are all the trips. Itinerary set. You know who's coming, you know who's not coming. Doing pretty well, guys. That's good. How's your Christmas spirit? That's what I want to talk to you guys tonight. You guys in the mood yet? You guys kind of getting dragged along? You wake up and realize that we're in the middle of December. We're almost there. We only got a few more weeks. We've had all of, basically, at this point, Jonathan, all of our major Christmas like, I mean, we're caroling next week, but concerts and, I mean, we're, we're in the heat of this, guys. We're getting there. I want us, I, I personally, if you guys have picked up, I love Christmas. Uh, everything about it, our Christmas playlist started playing probably in October. I squeaked it out. I got our Christmas tree up November 10th. Um, actually, the first sermon I preached, this is funny, the first sermon I preached, um, I used Christmas as an example to kind of open it up, and it was in the middle of June. I guess I was the only one who didn't think that was a little odd, but um, they were gracious to me. So I just love it. The food, the drinks, lights, everything that kind of comes with with the whole shebang, the songs that we love to sing. Um, But as we start to think about and get towards the climax of our Christmas season, I want us to ask a simple question. What ought to mark our Christmas spirit this year? What ought to mark it? What ought to define it? How ought we to respond to Christmas? Now, we know that Christmas is about the birth of our Lord and Jesus Christ. Everyone's aware of that. It's also interesting, we'll see in our text in a second, that Jesus' birth, his presence in the world, was already provoking very strong, spirited responses from the fortress of Jerusalem all the way to countries far from where everything took place. Let's go ahead and read our text, the book of Matthew, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them of when the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, For so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it arose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child marry his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And beginning... And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, 
Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. And then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all of the male children in Bethlehem. And all in that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let's take a second and get situated with our text. Quick history lesson. So the nation of Israel... We talked about a little bit this morning. They came out of Egypt. God gives them the promised land. They divide it. They settle into all of it. And that things are going well for a little bit, but then the kingdom split, right? And so you have Judah in the south, Israel in the north. Judah in the south gets captured by the Babylonians in about 586 B.C. And they come. The free land of Judah is all taken under Babylonian rule, and many of its citizens are taken off into exile. And by that time, uh, Babylonians capture everything, but it doesn't stay that way for long. And so then the Persians will come, and it's a, it starts to turn into big fish being eaten by bigger fish. And the Persians come, and they gain control of all, not only Babylon, but then also all the surrounding region, including Israel. Seventy years, it, close to the day after the fall of Jerusalem, King Cyrus, if you guys know the story, allowed for the Jews to return to Judah to do two things. They rebuild the wall, and they rebuild the temple. And you can see those two recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, after the last book of Malachi, about 400 B.C., um, you, the, the pages of Scripture close. There's kind of this intertestamental period people talk about. These various empires start kind of eating each other's land. So the Persian Empire does well, but then they're kind of taken over by a young upstart general, Alexander the Great. He comes in, whoosh, takes over all of Persia. He actually ends up conquering Jerusalem in 332 B.C. Nine years later, Alexander dies. But Jerusalem and Judea and all the lands basically get split up into these various generals ruling over these territories. Now, at one point, the, the, the Jews were just a little bit of a pain to manage and to govern because of all their practices. And so what ended up happening is they revolted against the Greeks at one point, and they gained independence at 140 BC, around that time. But they can't decide who exactly is going to lead them, and so they have all this infighting, and then the Romans will come in, and they'll just take over all of Jerusalem And that's where things are at our story. So big fishes, Babylon, Persia, Greeks, Rome, all that comes in. And in our story, you guys will see, if you're familiar with the gospel stories, that we basically are under Roman occupation right now. And so it's been, Judah's been under control of Rome ever since. In our story, if you guys see in the first verse, Jesus has already been born. Uh, Matthew's probably assuming a lot of the narrative from Luke's gospel, which if you don't have to talk about who came first, but it seems to be that he felt comfortable just skipping after the whole birth narrative. So you have a call his name Jesus and after Jesus was born. But at this point, probably two years, based upon what the narrative tells us, um, Jesus has been hanging out in Bethlehem, um, the city of his father Joseph, probably for about two years at this point. Um, this hanging out, they were called there, if you remember, because of the census of Caesar Augustus. And so that's kind of the historical thing leading up to here. 
Now, at this point, two-year-old baby Jesus running around, at this point, the fanfare is probably pretty limited, right? So we have some shepherds, we have some angels, but outside of that, it's basically another baby born to a young Jewish family. Not much is happening, but news is about to reach the capital six miles away by a very unexpected group of messengers. Who are they? This group of wise men you see in verse one coming from the east. Now, for a lot of reasons, things in daily Jerusalem just got very interesting. We see for a second that these wise men come in, they make reference to this special star. I don't know how many of you guys spend a lot of time staring at stars, but they see this star rising in the sky. And they look at this star, and they come to the conclusion that this star means that a new king has been born in the land of Judah. And so they have come all the way from, we don't actually know where they're from, but from the east, they have come all the way over to worship and to pay homage, basically to give reverence to this new king. That's basically the running story leading up to this. Now, a little bit of a quick bio from what we can understand of the Magi. Um, Wise men, the word in the Greek is a magi, so where we get the word magic from, if you're familiar with that. Magi were basically mystical court advisors. They studied the stars, they studied dream interpretation, as well as magical practices. So, if you actually see in the book of Daniel, if you guys are familiar with that, Nebuchadnezzar calls for his magi to help him interpret the dreams that he's having. If you want to go study that later, that's Daniel 2, 2 through 10. Now, based upon appearances alone, they must have been upper-class trustworthy people who can make a journey like this. Well, why? Who here has a farm? If you have a farm, you can't just go on very many expeditions, right? And in this day, most people's livelihood was dependent upon them tending for sheep and crops and things like this. And so, first of all, who has the ability in this type of culture to spend all day and spend their livelihood staring at stars? Honest question. I know we sometimes play with this, but, you know, honest question. Who has the ability in a place where all your food needs to be made by various people to just spend all their time staring at stars? Someone of high importance. Not only that, who then has the liberty, I think this is funny, to pick one star and think that it's a good idea to gather their buddies and go on some Bilbo Baggins adventure to appease their curiosity, see whether or not that this star is going to lead to anything. You know, we, we kind of read through these things, but I mean, was this common? Were they're common to see trips of travelers who are gallivanting around the first century after storms and four-leaf clovers and rainbows? I mean, was it something that happened all the time? They had to be someone of importance. Other thing to think about is that they walk into Jerusalem and they're able to get direct access to King Herod. So they had to be of a pretty big deal to do that. Now, question, why are they there? We've talked about this star but you have to ask some questions of what's, what's going on in this background. Probably what's happening is that by this time, Jews became very highly influential in the governments of the world. So you can think of people like Esther, think of Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Now, they, Jews were all over the empire, right, because of the redistribution of the Babylonians kind of moving everyone around, so the Assyrians, and as the Jews would go, so would go their ideas and their scriptures. And there's an interesting comment in Ezra 7 where Ezra actually returns back to the land with the law, which means that they must have had some opportunity to kind of dig around it and see what was going on. 
So what might, what might most likely happen is that the Jewish scriptures are cycling around and the people are able to study it and see what's going on. And then the people of these various empires are understanding what's going on with the Jews. So for speculation, I wouldn't die on this hill, but the Magi probably studied the scriptures, knew that there was some importance of a king. And then in the ancient Near East, usually stars were, went along with the birth of important people. And so they kind of put A plus B equals C, and then they set off to the land of Judea. Now, these magi appearing in Jerusalem sends Herod and the people of Jerusalem into an absolute frenzy. Here's a few reasons why. Well, first of all, Judah, if you have your mental map with the ancient Near East in your hand, they are under Roman occupation. Now, the people that these people were probably coming from are now under Parthian occupation. So big fish eats bigger fish. Roman, Romans come, Roman armies come down, conquer Judea, but Parthian armies come down and conquer what would be known as modern-day Babylon, and, or not modern-day, but in that time, um, Babylon. And so you had this enemy divide already going on that these magi would have to cross over. Also, recent Roman and Jewish memory of Parthians were not very good. So, for example, the Parthians actually invade Israel and capture Jerusalem about 30 years beforehand. So, non-very good terms. Also, for some of you guys who like history, Marcus Crassus, um, he was a really big player with Julius Caesar um, with Rome. He actually tried to invade Parthian territory with Roman armies, but he got absolutely destroyed at the Battle of Carhi. And there is a startling picture in Roman minds of Crassus having, being executed by having molten gold poured down his throat as a picture of his greed for power and trying to get more land in Parthian territory. So, not very good terms, right? So, but you have this group of magi going across that boundary and paying tribute to a new king in a foreign land. That's not quite going to go well. It would be it might, probably should taste sour in our mouths, something equivalent as if a Russian embassy yesterday showed up at a presidential rally and asked Donald Trump where the new president was. Right? And the way that this would have hit Herod, it would not have hit him well. But it's also a little bit backhanded towards Herod. If you guys see in verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now that's a really important question because Herod himself has some issues. Herod is not much more of a puppet. He sits in Jerusalem. He basically was put there by Rome to keep peace in the region. But really important, he's not actually a Jew. It's really important. No, he is an Idumean. Idumeans come from Edom. If you go back up the family tree, it goes to Esau. So while from the Roman eyes might say, hey, this is a great God, to put him there, the Jews hate Herod. Because he is a non-Jew on David's sea in Jerusalem. He tries to marry into Jewish blood. Um, and it actually backfires on him. Because everyone likes everyone in his family except for him. It doesn't work. And he can't take this news of this new king being born. Anything but a personal attack on his kingship. So these magi show up with some, some news of a king being born. Is it a revolt? Is it an insurrection? Also, as a person, Herod is bonkers. He has a short fuse, and he has a great scale of paranoia. He is well known for extreme outbursts of anger, and his favorite was public execution. 
He even executed some of his own wives and sons in order to keep his throne safe. And Caesar Augustus, the emperor you see in Luke, he actually made a comment that he would rather be Herod's pig than his son because of how trigger-happy Herod was. So it's safe to say that for this news from Magi, from Parthen lands, of a new king other than Herod was going to upset Herod. And then all of Jerusalem had to just deal with the fact that, you know, Herod's a little crazy and have to deal with both this news and what Herod's going to do about it. But with tension mounting, what does Herod do? He keeps it calm and he goes to his sources. So we see in verses um, 3 through 4 that Herod goes to the high priest scribes and he asks for the Jewish prophecy. You're going to see him gathering them together and saying, all right, if this is true, if this is what's going to happen, if there's a king to be born, where would it be? So... Like good Jewish leaders, they open up their prophecy books. And then in verse 5, the text says, They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. The scripture passage is from the prophet of Micah. It's pretty straightforward. That the, Beth, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. It also says that he would be a shepherd and a ruler. It's a good thing to go study later if you guys are interested. So having gathered this tidbit of information, he goes back to his, his new guest, his magi, says, all right, where is this star? And then he sends him off to Bethlehem. And then in verses 9 through 10, the magi arrive at their destination. At their destination. Think about this for a second. While Herod and the citizens of Jerusalem and the priests are continuing on their busy lives, one can imagine the scene shifting to a small town and these foreign visitors starting to approach various houses. They start talking to each other. They see the star, one of them points, that's the one, that's the one, that's the house. Inside, I can imagine Joseph and Mary settling in for an evening after a long day of work and Jesus probably crawling around behind his mother. All of a sudden, they hear this great commotion, the text says, of, of shouting, of, of rejoicing. Nervously, Joseph Good man stands up, peers out the windows, and sees what's going on, and sees this large group starting to move towards his house. He opens the door. He's probably really confused because everyone's smiling at him. And one of them begins to speak with a different accent, or maybe they're using a translator, and they tell Joseph something probably very similar to what they told Herod about this star, the birth of a king. They, as good guests, invite themselves in. They start to fill the small room, but they're not looking at Joseph and Mary, right? looking at the corners, looking at the ground. And one of them makes eye contact with Jesus, who's hiding in his mother's robes probably with that suspicious toddler peer over the robes and at the guests. Young parents probably place the child in the center of the room. They start to talk among themselves and start to make, make motions towards the boy. And what happens? One approaches, gets down on his knees, stares eye to eye with Jesus as a toddler. Everything stops for a second. And what does he do? This high official of probably Babylon, he bows his head to the dirt. And then he gets up. And someone else comes. Gets down to his knees. Looks eye to eye of a toddler and bows to the ground. Repeat, repeat, and repeat. There's probably some commotion in the back at this point because they recognize why they're there and a few of them start motioning and one of them goes back to the, the camels, right? And they come in with these strange boxes. And immediately the room smells because there are things that they've probably never smelled before. And so instead of the 
and the box is going to the parents, though, as you would probably assume. I get down on knee again, open these boxes. Now, Jesus is probably absolutely confused at what's happening, but his parents are dumbfounded as they're seeing these foreigners come in and open boxes of gold, of frankincense, and of myrrh. Offer them to the toddler, gifts for a king. And then what happens? Give the kids gifts to the, to the child, and each of them will take one last stare for a trip home and start to depart. And back to the camels. The room empties, make the way back up the road, and the family's left in awe. Isn't it incredible what this must have been like? One has to wonder what the Magi actually knew. What, what do they know? What do they know about Jesus and who he's going to be? We don't know. They think he was son of God. They, they, would they know much of what we would say? One would wonder if they, eventually the gospel got to them and they were like, that's, that's the one we were waiting for. That's the one who we were talking about. But what we do know is they did sacrifice much to come worship him with great joy. I think as Christians, we can see something to gain from these magi of a right example of how the Christmas spirit ought to invoke from us this, a certain response. And if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Joyful and sacrificial worship. I think that's one thing that we pick up from them. Joyful and sacrificial worship. Now, we all know what Christmas ought to mean to us as Christians, right? It's the birth of Christ. God has come to dwell with his people. Why is this a big deal? Because ever since the garden, we haven't been able to dwell with, with God. But now God has come among us. He has come to dwell with us. And the idea for us as Christians that God came to us and gave, he gave his son for us, that we might have eternal life, ought to be a source of constant joy. We focus every Christmas on the fact that he left his father's throne to come live with us. He lived a life we could not live and died the death that we deserved so that we could be made right with God. So what do we do this Christmas? We worship a king who left his throne. What's the result of that? See the sacrifice? I can just think off the top of my head what the Magi sacrifice. Think of the time, the money, the sacrifices, and the resources. But the one that hits closest to my heart is the pride. Bowing before a toddler who they knew to be king. Think about how different of a view this is from how our culture celebrates Christmas. They try to say that Christmas, particularly the joy and the happiness and the peppermint mochas, are for everyone. But honestly, it's really for a select few. You know, you can be happy, but it comes with a price. You need to buy it. For many people, Christmas is the highlight of the year where you stock up and you gawk over the latest iPhone and all the various things that come at you, the clothes, the cars, the gadgets, the gizmos. Christmas is commercialized, the events, the parties, the sales, the TV specials, the parades, the gatherings, it starts to overload everything. You know, you can be happy, but you got to be somebody. You can be happy, but you got to be the center of the party. Everyone's got to be coming to your house. You got to have the right things. You got to be important. You got to have the money. What's the underbelly of all this advertising that we so often miss but hits us on January 1st? That if you don't have this, you're not happy. Commercial Christmas in the United States could be seen as one of the most exclusive holidays in our nation. If you view it as you have to have X to be happy. And how many families that we can just see are crippled year after year financially and emotionally as they try to make themselves 
others happy for just one day. But how much is that contrast with the Magi? Think about it. When the world tries to sell you happiness and it tries to parade its false hopes in front of you and all the commercials and all the advertisements, the Magi show true happiness is seen in leaving your homelands where you're dignified and important and then giving up the honors and the riches and the material wealth to worship a toddler king. It's in giving everything we have and the world has to offer that we receive something of eternal value. It's God himself. Because you know at some point the party ends, right? January 1st. The gifts get old. Worse, the credit card bills come in. But you can't buy this happiness found on a desert dirt floor in Bethlehem before a savior. And instead of the patterns of the shopping mall where you just where you are able to get the blessings of the commercial gods of consumerism, but you got to leave a sacrifice, right? What is it? It's a card swipe. In Bethlehem you find and you find Jesus. And you give him the riches of the world and you leave with unimaginable everlasting joy. So let me challenge you to consider this Christmas, this holiday season, the true joy that, under, that comes from understanding who Jesus is as God, your Savior, and your King. And then you joyfully give him all the riches the world has to offer and you worship him. Just ask the Magi. But, sadly, the text doesn't end there, right? The narrative starts to take an ominous turn and step by step. First, the Magi warn not to return to Herod, but go home another way. Then an angel appears to Joseph Tell him to quickly flee to Egypt. And the family grabs all of its things and then heads out of town under the cover of night. Why? Because Herod's bad bluff is about to have a heavy price. In verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in that region, who, who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Based upon what historians have probably guessed, there were probably about a thousand people in Bethlehem at this time. If you probably did the probabilities of it, there are probably about 20 boys that fit this description. As the joyful worship of the Magi ends, the young family of Jesus is put to flight as they miss the falling sword of a pathetic king who only knows how to deal with his problems by action. You know, it's one of these verses that you can almost close your eyes and hear the cries of anguish, the families and mothers who lost their young children. I know we're just talking about joyful worship, but I don't think we can actually do justice to this text if we think about another element that ought to mark all of our seasons, and that the spirit of Christmas also includes a sober solemnness because of the brokenness in our world. If you're taking notes, you can write that too. A sober solemnness. Because we live in a world where grown men kill children to protect their power. Jesus was born into a world where before he could run, he was on the run. While it's easy to get caught up in the joy of the Magi, we also need to be sober about some of the realities pointed to in this text. First of all, why was Jesus born? He was born into a world of death with a death sentence. 
Just think back to what the angel told Joseph earlier in Matthew 1.21. He tells Joseph to name this boy Jesus. For why? For he will save his people from their sins. What's that going to take? His own death, right? Jesus came to die. Also, it's interesting that Matthew will then take this prophecy of, of Jeremiah and place it smack in front of us. Verse 18, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This picture is shocking. It's Jeremiah 31, 15. It's a metaphor and it's a picture of the nation of Israel going back into exile. So I started with that story. You guys remember the Babylonians came and they took the nation of Israel and they brought them into exile. Who's Rachel? The, the wife of Jacob, the grand, who's the grandson of Abraham. Rachel is the mother of Benjamin and Joseph, we talked about this morning, and the two of the heads of the tribes of the nation of Israel. Ramah is a land assigned to Benjamin, actually close to Rachel's gravesite. So here's this picture of Rachel weeping over her children, who are the family of Benjamin, but also the nation of Israel. But the text makes more sense if we understand what it's referring to. If you look later in Jeremiah 41, 40 verse 1, Ramah was a very important city in Babylonian conquest of Israel because Babylon conquered Jerusalem and it took all of its independence away. They chose Ramah as the city where when all the people had been conquered and all of the various rebellious, when everything had been done, when the Babylonian foot had fell, that this was the city that they would chain up the young men and march them to Babylon. So imagine this picture. Rachel, one of the mothers of Israel, weeping as the Babylonians conquer her children. Systematically going through the land of Judah and ending with the capital. The Babylonians then begin to round them up, right? Tearing apart families and chaining her children to these long lines. Those who were too old or too young were either left behind or killed as the Babylonians gloated over the new prizes. Slaves for their empire. And they're among more anguish Screams, tearful goodbye, Rachel, the matriarch, watches her children march off in the desert, led by Babylonian chariots. And none of these people ever come home. So why put that here? I think Matthew wants to see something that's really, really important because in using this prophecy, he's tapping into a thread of scripture. And in scripture, we repeatedly see sorrow and brokenness in the face of sin and suffering in the world. In the same way that Rachel and the families of Israel wept because of the foreign rulers as they were led into exile, the families of Bethlehem, still in exile, are weeping again because of the actions of these foreign rulers. Even though the Jews are back in the land, right? It's not the same. Herod's on the throne. The Roman legions pass by regularly as they build their massive empire. There's a sense in which the Jews knew that they were still in exile. They were not independent, and it wasn't the way that it was supposed to be. Even Ezra, at one point, who he comes back to the land in a prayer to God, says that we are slaves. We are still slaves. That's not just exile. That's going all the way back to Egypt. But in tapping into this thread of brokenness, this is really important, this isn't something that just impacts the Jews in the 1st century, or the 5th century, or the 16th century B.C., but impacts all of us. 
because we are regularly touched by the realities of sin and brokenness in a fallen world, from lesser degrees all the way up to the suffering, which breaks the hearts of the Rachels of Scripture. When our culture tries to do everything it can to fill itself and to numb the senses with the pleasures of the world, it can't mask that it's broken. And whenever the brokenness just breaks in into their, their celebrations, the parties are ruined, the bills come in. You reach a point where, you know, new toys and enough happiness can't cover up genuine suffering. And they don't know what to do. Because there comes a time in everyone's life when a new phone or a new car or the next party doesn't matter. When we live in a world where Herod's kill and Rachel's weep. For some people, Christmas is the worst holiday. Because it's a reminder of what you do not have that you want. It's a reminder of what once was, what could have been, what could be now, what will never be. Maybe it seems like every year the tables are getting emptier and emptier. The kids are growing up and moving on. Or maybe it's that first year or another year without the loved one. The celebration that took place at your house maybe went somewhere else. And instead of enjoying Christmas, the season, you feel like an outsider to everyone's celebrations, kind of peering in through the windows through, of everyone's happiness through social media and everything else happening. December 25th comes, the table's set for 20, set for two. The phone sits on its ringer because no one calls. Or maybe everyone does get together, but that scab that everyone knows to avoid is picked again. Here's your question. What's your world this Christmas? What do things look like? So I think as a church, we must minister both to the world and to each other by recognizing the dynamics of play, of great joy and sober solemnness. They don't contradict, they complement. We recognize that for everyone, their spirits will be seen this Christmas somewhere between great joy and solemnness. And that's okay. Why? Because it's only the good news of the gospel that can help us this Christmas of a baby born to a teenage girl because Jesus can receive both the joyful magis and the weeping Rachels. Whatever your world is this Christmas, it's the world Jesus was born into. He willingly entered into the mess of the world. And even now, he is willing to enter into your mess, whatever it is. The wounded, the rejected, the abandoned, the mistreated, the broken, the addicted, the sinned against are all welcome to his table this Christmas. And we as a, Christ, as a church to each other and to the world have a responsibility at every time the party ends for the world, we have something much deeper to point to, Right? But this isn't where the passage leaves us, thanks be to God. Because if you're paying attention to the story, and even the broader story of Scripture, you realize that Herod's move actually sets the stage for something. For the Magi's and for the Rachel's and for everyone in between, wherever you are this Christmas, you'll notice that the Christmas spirit last needs to be marked by great anticipation. That's my third point, great anticipation. That while Herod was merely impulsively acting to protect his own power, he unknowingly set the final check piece on the board, which God's next move will be checkmate. Let's set the stage a little bit. Now, in Herod striking out against Jesus, he puts himself in really bad company. 
Because first of all, there's this threat of scripture of the rulers of the world trying to strike out against the children of God. It happens in all various places. If you go all the way back to the beginning, do you have any images that come to your mind of a ruler who tries to kill the people, the children of God? If you're thinking about it, you guys should think about um, the Pharaoh in Exodus 1 and 2, right? What does he do? He tries to drown all of the children. That's the most prominent one that we can go to, but this also goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15, if you think about it, in which God spoke to a serpent that a son would come from Eve and he would crush your head. You might bite his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And ever since there, the sons of Eve and the sons of the serpent have been battling the people of God and the forces of Satan. So while Herod might be trying to just protect his power, he's putting himself in terrible company. All something else to think about. Is there another boy that was saved from the wrath of a king? Where is Jesus heading? Think about it. He's heading to Egypt. Was there another one? Moses? Think about that for a second. Now, there are many pictures in Matthew's gospel of Jesus as the new Moses. He goes through the waters of baptism. Then he goes through the wilderness, through the Red Sea, through the wilderness. And then where does he go in Matthew 5? He goes to a mountain and gives a new law. And he has 12 disciples that come around him, kind of paralleling Moses and the 12 tribes of Israel. Lastly, what would Moses do? He would save his people. He would deliver them from slavery. What's the verse that's quoted in um, verse 15? That was fulfilled what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Think about the fact that what, what's, what's just said there, that the people of Israel are still in exile. They're still in slavery because of this happening of the judgment of Herod of the children. So let's look at the board pieces. You have Herod, Pharaoh, Egypt, Satan, and then you have Jesus who's in Egypt with Moses, and then the people are in exile and slavery. And as all those pieces start to set, everyone starts to move, there should be one thing screaming at you. It's like, Wow, here it comes. What's coming? Salvation. In Exodus. It is coming. Really interesting point in Luke. In Luke, when it talks about the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah come to him on the mountain. What does it say in 931? He spoke of his departure. What was his departure? He was about to go to the cross and then go back up to the Father. What's the Greek word for departure? Ekados. Exodus. Salvation is coming. Exactly what we see, right? Is that what we see in the Gospels? That Jesus dies and delivers his people from sin by going to the cross and substituted in their place. Think about this fun picture for a while. Who won the Herod-Jesus battle? It actually says in the text, I don't know if you saw it, Herod, they stayed until in Egypt until Herod died. So Herod strove to protect his own kingdom, and he died. Jesus is the king who freely gives himself up for his people and dies on a cross and now lives forever. And one day, Herod will stand before Jesus, who's no longer an infant, and he will be judged for how he lived, and the true sort of judgment will fall. So the whole story of joy and sorrow sets the stage for the true spirit of Christmas, I would argue, in which both the joyful and the, and the sober of the world, and looking about all the suffering, have fervent faith, 
knowing that the days of sin, death, Satan are numbered. Why? Because Christ has defeated them all. And in the same way that this story anticipates Jesus' work of dying for their sins and rising again, we celebrate this Christmas supporting those who might be sorrowful, rejoicing with those who rejoice. Does that sound like a verse to you guys? Weep with those who rejoice, rejoice with those who rejoice? Maybe. But we do that with a fire of hope that something greater is coming. Historically, Advent just hasn't been something that we look back to. And the church has known that. You know, we look back to the fact that Christ came once. But we also look forward. Why? Because there's a second Advent coming where the Rachels will rejoice and the Magi will rejoice with them. The Herods will fall when Christ comes and consummates his kingdom. So where does that leave us? I don't know where you are this Christmas. The Herods might be killing. The Rachels might be weeping. Here's the great news. It's not over. It's not over. Why? Something is coming. So if you're here this evening and you would not consider yourself a Christian, here's a word for you. This is what we believe. This isn't just about Santa Claus and toys and all these things. That We come here and we worship every year that Christ came and became one of us because he saved us and that he offers to every person salvation. So what does he call you to do? All that he calls for you to do is to turn and to trust him. All you need to do is look at him and say, Jesus, I see you are the King of kings and Lord of lords and you died and you defeated death and I want to be part of your kingdom. You know what? I need you to save me and he will. He will do it. And for us Christians, as we continue to reflect upon this season, I want to challenge you with three things. Now, be joyful and worship. Let worship continue to define this holiday season of the king who came into the world for us. You know, be sober and somber. Realize why he came into the world. And as we think about particularly heading into next week with caroling, um, and you think about other people in the congregation, maybe even people here this evening, you know, Christmas is not the happiest season for everyone. So, but we can enter into that because that's exactly what Jesus did, right? He entered into our suffering and we're called to enter into other suffering with them. Last, we are hopeful because we know something is coming. We not only look back, but we look forward to when he will make all things new. So let me end with the last song, lines of a, long, of a song you guys know very well. Silent night, holy night, son of God, O oh love's pure light, radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace. Jesus, Lord at thy birth. Jesus, Lord at thy birth. Let us pray.